This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 356th episode, we have a bunch of news, including some ankylosaur news. Ooh. And we have dinosaur of the day Gastonia. More ankylosaurs. Very true. Yeah. That's a good one. And of course, a fun fact, which I think Sabrina swooping me on again. I guess so. It is a fun fact, if I do say so myself. <laughs> but before we get into all that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week we have two new patrons to thank and they are rogan which is a reference to a 90s video game so congrats if you catch the reference and aaron rose emsworth Soros. so thank you both very much for joining and helping us to keep our podcast running and then rounding out our shout outs we've got joey nicholas gabe daniel mcgill trent carbajal robert the tolbert family and jackson crawford yeah thank you so much everybody and we say this every week, but we genuinely mean it every week. <laughs> you know, your support means so much to us, and it's how we can keep this show going. So if you want to join our growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts and get in on some of our perks, like you know, talking to fellow dinosaur enthusiasts on our Discord, as well as access to extended interviews and bonus content, then go to our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news. I like when I get to do it. <laughs> There was a paper called Dinosaurs from the Santonian Campanian Atlantic Coastline Substantiate Phylogenetic Signatures of Vicariants in Cretaceous North America that was published in Royal Society Open Science. And it's basically Chase Brownstein described two dinosaurs that were in Appalachia in what is now the eastern United States, described a hadrosaur and a tyrannosaur, which is pretty cool because we don't talk too often about dinosaurs from that part of the country. I think we've heard that there was a tyrannosaur from around there. Do we do we know more about it now? Yes. These dinosaurs might be, well, I think the paper put it as potentially novel species, but didn't go as far as to name them. Okay. So he described specimens that were housed at Yale's Peabody Museum of Natural History. And these descriptions, they help show that dinosaurs from this area evolved distinctly from their relatives you know, the relatives in Western North America and Asia, because they were geographically isolated. So it makes sense. In a SciTech Daily article, Brownstein said, quote, they're also a good reminder that while the Western United States has long been the source of exciting fossil discoveries, the eastern part of the country contains its share of treasures. A little East Coast, West Coast rivalry little going bit, on. A little bit. Although back then, I mean, if you're talking about Western U.S. or Western North America dinosaur fossils, they don't make it that far west. <laughs> they don't really make it to the coast so much. That's true. More like Montana, The Badlands, yeah. Yeah. 
So these eastern, these east coast dinosaurs, they were found in the 1970s in what's now New Jersey and Delaware in the Merchantville Formation. They lived about 84 to 77 million years ago. Most of the fossils that have been found in this area are marine animals. They have mosasaurs, turtles, fish, ammonites, bivalves, crocodilians, and also pterosaurs. The other dinosaurs that have been reported from the Merchantville Formation include a metatarsal tentatively assigned to the hadrosaurid ornithotarsus. The holotype had been found nearby. And I'm pretty sure we talked about that at more length in our hadrosaur-tastic episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like one that probably would have gotten lumped and or split. Or there's some debate around it, yeah. If it's just a single metatarsal. Oh, that was the additional fossil found. The holotype is something else. Oh, okay. Yeah. I figured since the genus name has tarsus in it, that it might just be the metatarsal. (laughs) Oh, I see. Well, I guess I'll just tell you now, because the paper talked about the hadrosaur and the tyrannosaur, but it also looked at the holotype of ornithotarsus, which is a fragmentary hind limb. And Brownstein said he agrees with Prieto Marquez and others that it's an indeterminate hadrosaurid, but a large one. We know that because of the hind limb. And said that the apparent absence of diagnostic features in the holotype means, quote, this name should only really be used if a more complete skeleton is recovered with a tibia, fibula, and astragalus virtually identical to the holotype, end quote. Or it has a feature that you can tie it to the holotype. And that sounds unlikely. Yeah. So we're going more into that. We don't know about all of the hadrosaurs territory. (laughs) But back to the tyrannosaur. So the tyrannosaur helps fill in the tyrannosauroid record. It's possibly a new theropod from a new clade of tyrannosauroids from Appalachia. And it may help show that tyrannosaurs got larger earlier than previously thought, about 4 million years earlier. This tyrannosaur, it's estimated to be mid-sized, similar in size to Laramidian and Eurasian tyrannosauroids that lived around the same time. And this tyrannosaur had features like Dryptosaurus, That's a tyrannosaur that lived about 67 million years ago, also found in New Jersey. The fossils of this new tyrannosaur include metatarsus, bones in the foot, and caudal vertebra, most likely from the same individual based on, you know, they've got similar color, preservation, they were found close to each other. They're saying it's a mid-sized tyrannosauroid, either from an adult or a large subadult, and that's based on it having large muscle attachment sites, and there's also some fusion on the caudal vertebra. Pretty good signs. Mm-hmm. So the tyrannosaur had an elongated metatarsus. And Brownstein said that although the hind limb material for tyrannosauroids are considered enough, diagnostic enough to name a new taxon, quote, I took a conservative approach by suggesting novel apomorphies for the Merchantville tyrannosauroid and thus presenting Dryptosauridae as a multi-species clade while not erecting a new name, end quote. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder if there will be a future paper that will name this new tyrannosaur. Yeah, is he just giving up his naming of it and somebody else is going to swoop in and name it? Maybe. You know, just laying the groundwork. Maybe he'll write another paper. Who knows? Yeah, I suppose. I'm guessing these finds are probably pretty old at this point, though. So From the 1970s. Yeah, so it'd be kind of hard to go back and find more fossils or anything. True. So depending on where the collection is, maybe he's got time to mull it over and decide if he wants to give it a name later. Yeah. You never know. Things change quickly in the dinosaur field. Surprisingly quickly. (laughs) Brownstein also said, quote, 
Many people believe that all tyrannosaurs must have evolved a specific set of features to become apex predators. Our fossils suggest they evolved into giant predators in a variety of ways as it lacks key foot or hand features that one would associate with Western North American or Asian tyrannosaurs. Interesting. I wonder why it says hand features. Did they find part of the hand? I couldn't find that in the paper, but I did see a quote elsewhere talking about it had large claws, so... Huh. Maybe they just found, like, a claw associated near it, and it wasn't definitive enough to include it as, like, part of the holotype or anything? I think it could be that since it had some features in common with Dryptosaurus, and Dryptosaurus had a big hand, that maybe that's what's going on here. Okay. For the hadrosaur fossil, that helps to show the evolution of the hadrosaur shoulder girdle. It's a partial skeleton, and it's associated also with the, quote, first small juvenile dinosaur specimens from the Atlantic coastal plain, because the associated material includes some perinatal individual, like parts of the skull and rib fragments. Oh, cool. Yeah. So really small one then. Oh, yeah. And then the partial skeleton of the older one includes the scapulae, femur, fragmentary tibia, coracoids, and several fragments. And that one's an adult. And the adult's shoulder girdle is one of the most complete known for an Appalachian hadrosauromorph. Now, Brownstein also said this one's considered to be a potentially novel hadrosaurid, but like I said, the, neither of these dinosaurs are yet named. But they help show some diversity of dinosaurs in North America. Cool. Yeah, and it sounds like it was right around that time when North America was split because it wasn't really that much of the Cretaceous that we had the Western Interior Seaway, but it was there for a few million years at least. <laughs> I mean, at least completely subdividing the continent. So you'd in that much time, you'd expect a couple new things to pop up. And there might be some differences that stick around for a little bit after the Seaway receded to. <laughs> now it's time to talk about some ankylosaurs. I can tell you're excited. <laughs> you're not? I am, I am. There's also a sauropod in there. Oh, well. Slightly. All right, tell me more. <laughs> so this new paper was written by Ariana Paulina Carbajal and others and published in PLOS One. And it's all about an ecosystem of crocodiliforms and dinosaurs, or at least that's what the title would have you think. But there are a lot of other animals in this ecosystem too. So the crocodiliforms are called parasaurids, which are sometimes described as like a cross between a dog and a crocodile. Interesting. So they're, yeah, they're kind of like pseudosuchians, I guess. They're like more upright. So they have a more upright stance than a modern crocodile. They have a much shorter head. It's also a little bit taller. So in that way, it's a little more dog shape of a head too. And they were terrestrial. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of weird. but. They coexisted with dinosaurs and also competed for food and probably were in a vaguely similar niche as some of the smaller dinosaurs too, because these, I think, were not all that big, but we don't have a great fossil record of them, so I'm not sure exactly how big they got. Most of the ones I looked up were in the like 10 to 15 foot sort of range, but there might have been some bigger ones. I'm not really sure, because I'm all about the dinosaurs. So ankylosaurs and parasaurids both have osteoderms, because crocodilians often have osteoderms. And this paper shows a variety of really beautiful osteoderms. And fortunately, they think that they're all from ankylosaurs. Oh. Which is nice. 
They're all from Santa Cruz, Argentina, which is very far south in Patagonia, specifically in the Chorillo and Cerro Fortaleza formations. So it's not all about the titanosaurs there. It is not, no, because this is really far south. Mm -hmm. So in the northern part, there are also ankylosaurs, and there's a ton of titanosaurs, (laughs) among other dinosaurs. But in the southern part, we have way less discoveries, partly because it's very sparsely populated. There's not a whole lot of people way down in Santa Cruz, Argentina. And as an aside, the Cerro Fortaleza formation is where Dreadnoughtus was found. Which is a titanosaur. So there are some titanosaurs, is what I'm hearing. There's one, at least, yeah. Mm -hmm. Could be more. Yeah, probably. It'd be (laughs) weird if there was just one. (laughs) And you might remember, too, that means that it... The region is probably Campanian to Maastrichtian, or about a 72 million year old fauna, plus or minus a couple million years, because you always have to add that in paleontology, or usually have to. And Dreadnoughtus is still the only named dinosaur from the formation, because just like with your paper, they didn't find enough detail and it wasn't diagnostic enough to name any new dinosaurs. So we have a much better idea about the ecosystem, but we don't have any new, like brand new named dinosaurs, unfortunately. In total, they found about 13 teeth and 9 osteoderms from a variety of animals. They represent two herbivore groups, the ankylosaurs and titanosaurs. So the titanosaurs were mostly the teeth and the ankylosaurs were the osteoderms? Yeah, there's just one tooth, one partial tooth that's from a titanosaur. Okay. And there were also two carnivore groups. There were the non-dinosaur perosaurids as well as some abelosauroid fossils. Dun dun dun. (laughs) Yep. So it wasn't all just herbivores hanging out together. Not surprisingly. (laughs) The osteoderms that were found were quote, interstitial armor ossicles, end quote. What does that mean? So the interstitial basically means that it filled the space in between the larger osteoderms. So these are all small ones. Yeah. So they're all about a centimeter in diameter or less across. Wow, somebody had a good eye to find those. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing they found them as like part of a, a microfossil survey of some sort. But yeah, or it could just be someone with amazing eyesight and a real knack for finding these little tiny things. When you look at them blown up, I thought that they were much larger because some of the shapes of them resemble much larger osteoderms like you see You know, they're basically the size of the palm of your hand. Oh, wow. Where they have that sort of conical shape. Some of them have more of a ridge down the middle or all sorts of different varieties. They have those same kind of shapes, but way smaller. I guess that makes sense if they're filling in. You don't want it, or it doesn't need to be too different to fill in the space. Yeah, it's sort of like a tessellation. I guess those happen a lot in nature. They think that these little osteoderms came from the arms, legs, and underside of the ankylosaur. So all over. Yeah, but like presumably the areas that were a little more flexible and possibly a little less heavily armored. Mm. I think that's maybe based on the fact that they were so small. Mm -hmm. They resemble the osteoderms on the small Australian notosaur, Cumbarosaurus. Oh, that's cool. And they're also similar to Antarctopelta, which is the notosaur from Antarctica. So So they're all from um, not too, too far away from each other. Yeah, well, back in the Cretaceous... They were really close. Basically, the southern tip of South America was connected to Antarctica, and the other end of Antarctica was connected to the western end of Australia, or maybe southern, depending on what part of the Cretaceous. 
So it would have been possible to walk all the way from where this ankylosaur is through Antarctica and into Australia, depending on how it was connected at that moment. So maybe not by 70 million years ago when this one was around, but certainly its ancestors <laughs> at least should have been able to. So in order to compare these ankylosaur osteoderms to other ankylosaurs and try to get a better guess at what group it was in, they sliced a couple of them in half to look at the internal structure. Nice. And they found that it was really dense bony tissue, as you might expect for a osteoderm. But it was also full of mineralized collagen in orderly rows, both vertically and horizontally, that presumably added strength to the bones or skin or skin bones. That armor? Yeah. yeah that thing that was protecting it and needed strength? <laughs> yes. <laughs> there are similarities in the structure to Borealopelta osteoderms, which is another reason that it's so great that we have Borealopelta in all of its amazingly preserved glory. It's good for comparing. Yes. But unfortunately, even with all that, we can't tell for sure if those osteoderms are from an ankylosaurid with a club tail or a notosaurid without a club tail mm. because they're just osteoderms yeah. and, you know, it's, need more fossils. Exactly. You definitely need more fossils than just osteoderms to identify it. Really, you need a skull. It's what you need when you're talking about ankylosaurs yep. or the or the tail is also good if you're only interested in whether it's a notosaur or an ankylosaur. They also found a single notosaurid tooth, and in this case, they are confident that it's a notosaurid tooth or a clubless ankylosaur, and that's... <laughs> <laughs> if you want to make it all about ankylosaurs, yeah. Yeah, and that's because there are some differences in the teeth of notosaurids versus ankylosaurids, but that's about all I can say about it, is that it's from a notosaurid. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, that's how it goes with teeth. Like, you can identify the family, but you can't really identify the species, and... Even if you could identify a species, you're definitely not going to name a dinosaur on just a tooth unless you want to go to Not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You Not anymore is right. <laughs> not like Troodon. <laughs> Although I know that's contentious because there are some Troodon skeletal finds that have been synonymized and things. So, yes. So the sauropod find is also a single tooth. They describe it as pencil-like. That's pretty typical for a sauropod. Yeah, it's similar to Diplodocus, as well as a lot of Titanosaurids. So maybe this could be from Dreadnoughtus, since Dreadnoughtus is a Titanosaur mm -hmm. and from the same formation. But really, we have no idea. Because like we were talking about, there are lots of potential Titanosaurs that could be in far, far southern Patagonia in the late Cretaceous. What a nice thought. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> they also found an abelosauroid tooth. I guess that's less of a nice thought. <laughs> As you'd probably guess for an abelosauroid, it is a big serrated and relatively flat, you know, laterally compressed tooth. It's missing the tip and the root, but the serrations are in really good shape. They're hooked and they actually, in under magnification, remind me of like a chainsaw, the way they're like curved and look like they would really be great at cutting mm. through a lot of dino meat. That is what they're meant for. I get, um, they might also be meant for getting through some parasaurid meat. Oh, true, true. <laughs> Any kind of meat, really. Or some fish. I don't know. Could be, yeah, a lot of types of meat. Probably not plants, though. And hopefully the uh, ankylosaur osteoderms were up to the task of preventing any sort of massive damage. 
the way that they could tell is it's an abelosauroid is because it has smooth enamel and then there's also a specific curvature shape that they can combine those details and be like, oh yeah, that's pretty certainly an abelosauroid and probably an abelosaurid. But beyond that, they can't be any more specific. It's still pretty good. Yeah. They made some paleo art of it and a, the abelosaurid they made looked like abelosaurus to me. They didn't make it like carnotaurus with its weirder, shorter head. Mm-hmm. I did look at some carnotaurus teeth just to compare them to this one and they look quite a bit different. So carnotaurus is sort of a weirdo and I don't, this probably wasn't carnotaurus from my guess at least. There's also a small fragment of another theropod tooth, which is larger than the other pieces, but it's smaller as like a fraction. So it it looks like it's probably 10% or less of the tooth. It's just like a thin little slice. It's basically just enough to see some details about the enamel. Fortunately, the enamel is pretty interesting. They describe it as either the, quote, braided enamel texture, end quote, of an allosauroid or the, quote, veined enamel, end quote, of a spinosauroid. Interesting. Yeah, the allosauroid would be incredibly interesting because the one that it's most similar to, actually the one they called out in the paper, is Acrocanthosaurus, which would represent another group of large predator in addition to the abelosaurid that we probably have with the other tooth. And if it's an allosauroid, it's probably a carcharodontosaurid. And we are just talking about how Carcharodontosaurids were basically gone by about 80 million years ago. And since this is about 70 million years ago, that would extend the latest known Carcharodontosaurid by about 10 million years, which would be hugely important. And if it's a Spinosaurid, which is their other guess, that would also be a huge find since that's about 20 million years after the last known Spinosaurid. I wonder if they'll find more fossils so we could know more. Yeah. So I read all this in the paper and I was like, wow, that's really amazing. And then I looked at the picture of the fragment they're basing this on and I was like, I'm a little skeptical because uh-huh. it's a very small piece. And those are some pretty bold claims that it could be either an allosauroid or a spinosaurid. If they've got really distinct textures on their teeth, though. Yeah, I mean, the enamel and the enamel preserves pretty well. That's one of those things that fossilizes pretty effectively and doesn't usually get deformed much. We'll have to see what other people think of this, but hopefully they have to just find more fossils. That's always the best answer. Yeah. People might get excited about it now, knowing that there's more out there to be found. Then real quick about the parasaurids, they have much more varied teeth than modern crocodilians. Some sources I was looking at say crocodilians just have one type of tooth throughout their mouth, hmm. but other places were saying they're heterodonts. I'm not really sure where that debate is at if it even is a debate or i was just reading some sources that don't know what they're talking about but (laughs) they found four types of teeth for the parasaurids which seems like a lot for a crocodilian to have four types of teeth in its mouth that's the same number that we have in our mouths that's weird to think about yeah and i mean they serve sort of similar functions they have small conical teeth in the front presumably for like ripping flesh i guess sort of like our incisors And then they have a few large canines intermixed in the front. So not really like us because they're like sort of spaced all over the place. And they're way bigger, which give that crossbite that you always see with alligators where like some of the bottom teeth overlap on the outside of the the top of the mouth. That menacing look. Yeah. Yeah, The like underbite that's all creepy. Yeah. Like they gave to Indominus Rex and the Indoraptor. I think both had that going on Mm. in Jurassic World. They have spatulate teeth in the middle, 
which is different. Our spatula teeth are in the front, and then they have molars in the back. So in general, sort of like our teeth, if you gave us huge, massive canines instead of the little dinky ones we have now, and obviously a way stronger bite. And just for the record, parasaurids evolved in the early Cretaceous, but went extinct with the ankylosaurs at the end of the Cretaceous. So I guess that armor didn't help them too much. No, didn't help either of them that much. I thought you were going to call me out on saying the ankylosaurs went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous, but (laughs) (laughs) snuck that one by. (laughs) So in all, the paper is the first record of ankylosaurs from this area. Probably all notosaurids, but maybe there's an ankylosaurid in the mix. It's the southernmost parasaurid find, but previously other animals have been found in the formation, including ornithopods, lots of fish, and turtles. Fish and turtles always come up. (laughs) They do. I think they just fossilize pretty well because stuff in the ocean is likely to get buried by that nice sediment and then get fossilized. And turtles just stand out so much. Like you see a fossilized turtle, you're like, that's a turtle. Nobody's going to miss that. I guess. (laughs) Show-offs. Yeah. But overall, the formation is mostly parasaurids. They say, quote, parasaurid crocodiliform teeth represent 75% of the sample, suggesting a predominance of crocodiliforms over dinosaurs, which is congruent with the rise of Notosuchian diversity during the late Cretaceous. Oh, it was the beginning of the end. Yeah, it reminds me of those papers where they were saying like dinosaurs were in decline before the meteor hit. Yeah. But I guess... At least in this area. Yeah, in this area, it wasn't all dinosaurs all the time. There were some Notosuchians creeping up. But it sounds like there's still more dinosaurs to find there. Yeah, I hope they do. Yeah, it is. It's remote, though. So Mm. I can understand. And it's also very cold. It's so far south. Right. So it's hard to get there. It's hard to work there. It's probably really hard if you find something big to get it somewhere that you could go and prepare it properly to. Yeah, it was found like in between two lakes also. I'm not, it just, it seems like a tricky spot to do field work. Although easier than Antarctica, because I think to get to Antarctica, it's like you go there, then you keep going a couple hundred miles, then you get on a boat, then you go, and then you probably take a helicopter to shore. I mean, and back in the Cretaceous anyway, it was all basically the same. There wasn't a huge difference between Antarctica. They were so much closer back then. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. 
So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So moving on to other news, researchers from the University of Alberta and the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum the Boreal Alberta Dinosaur Project team, recently excavated an incomplete ceratopsian skull from the Grand Prairie area. Nice. We saw that excavation site, I think. I don't know if we saw this exact site. Well, we went to a ceratopsian assemblage that was right, well, that was in Grand Prairie. So maybe, I guess it could have been a different site in the same. Were we near the Red Willow River? We were near a river, but I don't remember no, what yeah. river it was. This one was found near the Red Willow River. <laughs> That's sort of a tongue twister, huh? A little bit. The skull is in a rock. It weighs 1,250 pounds or 570-ish kilograms. So they had to airlift it out via helicopter and it took them several days and they actually had to lighten the load. It used to be in an even bigger, heavier block of sandstone and they tried to airlift that a few weeks earlier, but it couldn't be done. It was too heavy. Interesting. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, half a ton, that's not that bad for a ceratopsian skull, especially with rock around it mm -hmm. in a jacket and everything. But it sounds like that was the slimmed down version. <laughs> yeah. And while they were chipping it away, they found an ornithomimid claw in the block and a lot of plant fossils. So oh, it cool. sounds like there's more stuff to be found there. Nice. There's not too many details yet because they need to prepare it. The fossils are at the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum, and then they're going to go to the University of Alberta for more preparation and analysis. That's cool. It's too bad they can't just prepare it right in that museum. I know they have a little bit of a prep lab there, but maybe they don't have the right experts that they want working on it. Could be, or maybe it's too large. I don't know. Oh, could be, yeah. Next, we've got a quick update on the Ubi Rajara fossil. That's that newly named Comsec method that we discussed in episode 317. So the Natural History Museum in Karlsruhe, Germany, where the fossils are, said that the fossil is going to stay in Germany. And according to that museum's Instagram, the fossil was, quote, acquired before the UNESCO Convention on the Means of Prohibiting and Preventing the Illicit Import, Export, and Transfer of Ownership of Cultural Property came into force, and it was imported in compliance with all customs and entry regulations, end quote. Was this the one that came from Brazil? Yes, and there's been yeah. a lot of controversy over it. Yeah. So a 2016 German law says all material brought into Germany before April 26, 2007 is considered legal in Germany. <laughs> That's interesting to make a law about what's legal on the import end of it rather than the export from the other country. Yeah, so there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely been some outrage online. 
And I guess they were originally talking about maybe repatriating, but I don't know what happened there. Something changed. The museum said the dinosaur is preserved for posterity and, quote, is available to the international scientific community for research purposes. There are some legal actions being explored to get it back to Brazil as a national asset. In the meantime, Cretaceous Research has temporarily removed the article that first described Ubi Rajara. They said that there will be a replacement as soon as possible that will include a reason for the removal. Yeah, I think we talked about when that first got removed and we were saying, oh, they might be adding another author or maybe adding a new lead author from Brazil. I think they were waiting for the final results to happen and then now I don't know. Yeah, because we, we talked at the time about different ways they could make this work, like they could have it in Germany for a few years and then send it back or they could make a replica and keep the replica in Germany because it does... The German people who worked really hard on this fossil put a lot of time and effort and everything into it, and they should get something out of it. I mean, I guess they got the publication out of it, so maybe that's enough. But I could see an argument for saying, like, well, they should at least get a replica or maybe have it on display for a couple of years before returning it or something. But yeah, I'm usually in the camp of keep the dinosaur fossil as close to where it was excavated as possible because then you can keep the whole fauna together and it's a lot easier. It's easier to study. It brings interest to the area, all that kind of stuff. But doesn't sound like they're going that way. At least for now. Who knows? People might change their minds. We're not privy to what's going on behind the scenes. <laughs> That's true. In less controversial news, Massachusetts is one step closer to getting their official state dinosaur. That's good. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of steps. There's always more steps than I remember. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you might remember early February, Representative Jack Patrick Lewis filed the bill, H3190. Now a committee cleared that bill recently, September 14th. But more committees still need to clear it. Then it needs to get votes in the House and the Senate. And then the governor needs to sign the bill. So there's a lot of steps, but still it's progress. So it got out of committee. Yes. Or one committee. Right. That's weird that there's multiple committees. I guess that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah, that is like the very first step. So there's a long way to go. <laughs> yeah. But people are excited about it. And then if you're following along in the process, you get an idea for how things work government-wise. As a quick recap, there was a survey in January about which dinosaur Massachusetts was going to pick to be the official state dinosaur. They got about 35,000 votes. And more than 60% of those votes went for Podokosaurus which was a carnivorous dinosaur from the Jurassic, whose bones were found in 1910 by Mignon Talbot, the first woman to name and describe a dinosaur. Unfortunately, those bones were lost in a fire in 1917, but luckily some casts were made. Yeah, sounds like a cool fossil, and it's got an interesting history to it. Yeah, definitely. It's a bummer that they don't have the holotype anymore, but I suppose there's always a chance that they'll find more bones from that species in the future. Mm-hmm. Plus, if you live in Massachusetts now and you got to vote, that'd be fun. You got to have a say in your state dinosaur. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much longer it'll take, but hopefully soon we'll hear about it being official. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Gastonia, which was a request from Paleo Mike 716 So thanks. Good choice, Paleo Mike. Yes. Oh, because it's an ankylosaur? Yes. Yeah. So it's an ankylosaur that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Utah in the United States in the Cedar Mountain Formation. It looked like other ankylosaurs, you know, walked on four legs, was heavily armored, had a beak. It's estimated to be around 16 feet or 5 meters long and weigh 1.9 tons. Seems about average for an ankylosaur, I would say. Yeah. Not big, not small. 
but still dense and armored. Yes. It had this flat, broad body, and its body was covered in round, bony scutes. Also known as osteoderms. Mm-hmm. And it had a large pelvic shield with bony plates fused together and large triangular spikes on the top and sides of its body. It also had an expanded shin bone and a long tail, but with no tail club. So it's a notosaurid, probably. Yes. Ankylosauria notosauridae, polycanthinae after that, if we want to get specific. Gotcha. So you could call it and still be right, an ankylosaur as well as a notosaurid, but not an ankylosaurid. Yes. Just a regular ankylosaur. Because it doesn't have the tail club. The tail did, though, have triangular blades on the sides that could have sheared and left gashes, so that might have been part of its defense. Gastonia also had a relatively long neck, and it had at least two bone rings covering the neck, and it had an elongated, somewhat pointed skull. There was no armor on the snout. On its cheeks, it had small horns, jugal horns, and it had small horns on the back of the skull, the squamosal. It also had a notch in the upper beak, and the beak was toothless. It's possible that Gastonia may have headbutted. Its brain case was somewhat flexible, which would help with absorbing shock, and it also had a pretty thick skull. So this is some speculation here. Interesting. Or it could also just be that that was how the armor worked, by having thick skull. True, and absorbing the shock with the somewhat flexible brain case. It also had forward-facing eyes. Gastonia was herbivorous, you may have guessed. Hundreds of Gastonia bones have been found together. Oh, cool. Yeah, the discovery helped show that ankylosaurs may not have been so solitary. They may have lived in herds. There's two species, Gastonia bergii and Gastonia lori McWinnie. <laughs> that is... That is a species name right there. Yeah, we actually mentioned the Gastonia Lori McWinnie in our one of our books because that was named in 2016 by Kinnear and others. And Gastonia bergii was named in 1998 by Jim Kirkland. The genus name Gastonia is in honor of Robert Gaston, the paleontologist and also the founder of Gaston Design Inc., which makes fossil replicas including the one we have of a stegosaurus plate. Oh, that's right. That's a Gaston design? I believe so. Nice. So Gaston found the fossils when he worked for a rock shop owner in Moab, Utah. The species name Bergii is in honor of the former director of the College of Eastern Utah Prehistoric Museum, Donald Bergi. That second species, Lori McWinnie, is named for Lori McWinnie, who found the Gastonia bone bed in 1999. And the holotype for that one is a skull roof. It's not often that they name a species with a full first and multi-syllabic last name yeah. in one Lori McWinnie. It's like, could have just gone with McWinnie or Laurie, but no. I like it. Why not both? Why not? <laughs> Gastonia is also the name of a city in North Carolina in the United States, but that doesn't really have to do much with this dinosaur. The holotype of Gastonia bergii is the skull of an adult. The type specimen, CEUM-1307, was found in a bone bed in Grand County, Utah, in the yellow cat member of Cedar Mountain Formation. 
And this bone bed includes fossils of a few Gastonia and Iguanodontid and Utah raptor. The most common fossils in Cedar Mountain Formation were Gastonia. And they may have been so common because they were so well protected against Utah raptor. Yeah, that certainly helps. Yeah, all that armor. So there's a lot of Gastonia fossils, but also a lot of disarticulated material. The 1998 paper mentioned four partial skulls, a complete uncrushed skull, and lots of vertebrae and armor. And so a lot of the fossils were scattered, so it was five individuals that they'd found at a minimum. Gotcha. So there must have been like five left humerus or some bone that overlaps. Oh, they're going by the skulls. Oh, there were five skulls. Yeah. Four partial skulls and a complete uncrushed skull. Oh, that's great. Mm Mm-hmm. And I guess you did mention that the holotype is a skull, which is also really important because if you don't have the skull of an ankylosaur, it's likely to get nomen dubium on you. <laughs> so I guess we don't have to worry about that with Gastonia. Yep. So Gastonia had characters of ankylosaurids and notosaurids. It had an ankylosaurid-like skull. It had a triangular skull. The discovery of a second species of of Gastonia adds to the support of defining Polycanthidae as a family of ankylosaurs separate from Ankylosauridae and Notosauridae, which had been suggested by a few people, Carpenter in 2001, Kirkland and others in 2010, Lowen and Kirkland in 2013, and Lowen and others in 2014. Yeah, I keep expecting our classification of ankylosaurs to switch because we covered another paper too where they were talking about how we shouldn't use the categorization notosaurid anymore because that's actually two different like less related groups and i think polycanthidae was one but still in all the new papers i always see the term notosaurid used and ankylosaurid used so i don't think it's really caught on yet but i am expecting at some point for it to switch you're just talking about notosaurids yeah and while actually while i was talking about that i was like should i use one of the other terms but in the paper they're literally calling it notosaurids the whole time and that paper just came out so yeah people even though there are some people talking about we should stop using the term notosaurid and use these other family names it hasn't really changed yet in the literature everyone's still saying notosaurid from what i see yeah so Part of the reason Polycanthidae is not universally accepted is because there's some analyses that are restricted to skulls, and I guess some of the characters aren't necessarily in the skull. Hmm. So Polycanthidae, though, it's for specimens that have certain shared notosaurid and ankylosaurid-like characters. Gotcha. In 2016, Billy Kinnear, Kenneth Carpenter, and Alan Shaw re-described Gastonia and named that second species Gastonia Laurie McWinnie. So, two birds, one paper. <laughs> <laughs> and Gastonia Lori McWinnie had a flat skull roof compared to Gastonia bergii's more domed head. So that's why there's two species. Gastonia has been found in Yellow Cat Quarry, in the Gaston Quarry, north of Arches National Park in Utah, as well as Dalton Well Quarry, north of Moab, Utah, Lori's site near Yellow Cat Quarry, known from two skulls and two partial skulls, and the skull is one of the best early ankylosaur skulls known. They named the second species based on the individuals found in a bone bed known as Lorisite, makes sense, Lori McWinnie, and that's a predominantly monospecific bone bed of Gastonia. So it's possible that the individuals died together from a drought or they drowned while crossing a swollen river. A swollen river? You don't hear that as a description for rivers very often. True. So I guess like a flooded river or like... 
something that was hard to cross. During a storm. They said that most cedar mountain ankylosaurs are known from partial, usually single individuals, except for Gastonia. All three of these localities were bone beds. Wow. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So the holotype locality, type locality, is yellow cat quarry. They had a lot of bones that were mostly disarticulated and scattered. Some bones were badly crushed and distorted. It was hard for them to reconstruct the armor. In the Dalton Well Quarry, at least nine individuals were found based on brain cases and skulls. Eight of them are subadults and one is an adult. So these fossils may show gregarious behavior. That's interesting that there were eight subadults and an adult because sometimes people speculate about maybe the subadults had their own little group where they would sort of live together and then the adults might have a separate group or as once they're adults, they might split up, but that there was one adult mixed in with smaller individuals. Yeah. What was that adult doing? <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was caring for all those subadults maybe. or maybe there were lots of other adults and they just didn't happen to fossilize. Mm hmm. So 2009 study found the fossils to be at least partially articulated at the time of debris flow reworking. And they're saying this alternative idea that the group was killed and transported before being buried was unlikely because the soft tissue should have resulted in articulated skeletons. Yeah, so in other words, it looks like they probably lived together because they don't look scattered enough. Yeah, or they died together at least. At Lori's site, articulated bones were found. Most of those bones show damage, including being crushed. And the damage appears to be due to trampling. So it's possible that a gregarious herd or group died together. Maybe they died congregating at a waterhole during a drought and then were scavenged and the bones were disarticulated and then the remains transported and buried on a floodplain. Or they died from a mass drowning of a herd migrating while forging a river, and that's based on distribution of the bones being similar to wildebeest drowning mortalities with carcasses concentrated on a floodplain. Hmm. Either way, there was some post-mortem decay, you know, after they died, and disarticulation, and then they were buried. Gastonia lived in a dry area with a short wet season in a partly wooded area. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place include Hippodraco, Iguana Colossus, the sauropod Cedarosaurus, and theropods like Martha Raptor and Utah Raptor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And our fun fact, I got to start the news and do the fun fact this week. It's too much. You're taking over. Nah, it's fun. So there was a paper 
called Vocal Imitations and Production Learning by Australian Musk Ducks that was published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of London B. Musk Ducks, huh? Yes. This is by Carol Tenkate and Peter Fuligar. So it turns out that musk ducks, <laughs> the scientific name is Bizeura lobata. They're from Australia. They're gray. They have short wings and short legs. They don't really fly. And the dominant males have a musky odor. That's why they're called the musk ducks. <laughs> turns out they can talk. Or more specifically, they can mimic sounds that they hear. Interesting. Yeah. So there's one that's been recorded saying, quote, you bloody fool. Oh, I heard that when you were preparing this fun fact. I don't really agree that it sounds like you bloody fool, though. It's not terribly clear, but I could hear it. Okay, I'm going to play a quick recording of it just so our listeners can hear what it sounds like. Once, I mean, if you read that's what it says, then there's mm -hmm. enough pareidolia, too, where it's like, oh, yeah, that is what it's saying. But I, I bet if I told you it, it was saying, like, a filthy pool, then you'd hear that instead. Maybe. But musk ducks pick up vocal learning when they imitate sounds or make new sounds. Mm -hmm. Really quick, the, the duck that said, you bloody fool, it's got a name. It's Ripper. And Ripper picked up this phrase from his caretaker. Ripper can also imitate a slamming door. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, that one's a little less hard to mistake. Yeah. Or more hard to mistake. So a big part of vocal learning is getting auditory feedback. You can learn how to make the right sounds, and then you can communicate. And us humans, we're vocal learners. We are? Yeah, because we're not born knowing how to speak. We learn it as babies. Oh, there are animals that are born knowing all the sounds already? That's a good question. I, I didn't read up on that. I just read that we're considered vocal learners because we learn it. Yeah, but I guess that implies that there are some animals that just like come out all ready to talk or ready to vocalize. They might just have really limited vocalizations, so then they don't really need to learn much because it's just like whatever little noises they can make, that's all there is to it. Maybe, or maybe it's that we're one of a few types of animals that can communicate with each other clearly. Yeah, more complex vocalizations, I guess. Yeah, because we're vocal learners, but then there's only a few other animals that can acquire vocalizations. That list includes some birds like parrots, hummingbirds, some songbirds, some whales, some seals, some dolphins, some elephants, even some bats. Yeah, I think the most famous one is the lyrebird. Have you ever heard that one? They can imitate like chainsaws and all sorts of like really complex noises and it sounds just like them. They're pretty amazing. Oh, I always think of parrots and how they can sometimes parrot back phrases. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> they have the whole word named right after them. Mm -hmm. So there was another musk duck found to imitate a different kind of duck, a Pacific black duck. This musk duck was raised among the Pacific black ducks and it imitated their quacks instead of having <laughs> the musk duck quacks. Now, Ripper, the one you bloody fool, was raised in captivity and as the only musk duck. And that could be why Ripper imitates other sounds. Oh, I see. It didn't learn from other ducks. It learned from people. Yeah. That are apparently... The caretaker, the slamming of the door. Yeah. It sounds like this duck grew up in a broken home <laughs> with <laughs> profanity being yelled and doors being slammed. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel kind of bad for this musk duck. 
Well, musk ducks aren't usually bred in captivity because adult males tend to be too aggressive. So there's <laughs> not that many instances of musk ducks around humans. That's kind of funny. Like it's picking up the really aggressive stuff and that's what it wants to learn how to say. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I mean, in general, they're not that well studied, but maybe. Ripper, this recording actually is from 1987 when Ripper was four years old. And to get the recording, they had to enrage Ripper to put on a display. So they had somebody near Ripper's territory so that Ripper would kick and splash water while saying, you bloody fool. And musk ducks also do similar things with the kicking to impress potential mates. So maybe, yeah, maybe Ripper realized that that was a phrase somebody who was angry said. Yeah. <laughs> because there's no other types of ducks that seem to be vocal learners, it might mean that the musk duck independently evolved this ability. That's one of the hypotheses anyway, but there's more data that needs to happen. There have been observations of other male musk ducks. They don't think that there's any female musk duck examples of these imitations. Oh, it's always like a territorial or like display type behavior? It could be, yeah. But the observations of the male mustucks are imitating sounds and words. There's coughs, turnstile squeaks, a snorting pony, <laughs> but those haven't been recorded. It really gets those lady musk ducks going when you imitate a turnstile squeak. Or a snorting pony, yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> So bringing this back to the non-avian dinosaurs, one of the ideas from the study is that the musk duck is a lecking species. And in the future, it would help to find if animals that lek have variation in their vocal characteristics. Also, the fact that musk ducks are more altricial than other ducks, that means they're not as developed when they hatch and they need more care for longer from their mothers. Musk ducks have very few babies at a time, and mothers feed their babies till they're nearly grown. Yep. There's a lot of similarities between dinosaurs and humans. That's one of them. Great. So that made me think of the theropods, because they took care of their young, and they didn't have too many at a time, and they also left behind signs of lecking. So could theropods have been vocal learners? Possibly. That is a little bit speculative that they took care of their young and didn't have that many at a time. We're not really sure about that. Okay, but just thought experiment. Say that happened, and then one was isolated from other tyrannosaurs. Could a baby T-Rex, for example, that got isolated, learn to imitate another dinosaur sounds? Like, what if there were tyrannosaurs that did chirp, not because tyrannosaurs chirped, but because <laughs> they heard the chirping from something else? <laughs> I see what you're saying. Yeah, it could be. Especially because tyrannosaurs were around so late that there were other birds, you know, just full-on birds living at that time that probably had a syrinx and were doing things like chirping. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you had a T-Rex or some other theropod that was isolated or just even if it was just trying to impress a mate because you were saying some of these ones that aren't in isolated conditions still imitate different sounds, then it could imitate a chirp just as like a, a display even though it's not their normal sound to make. Oh, those other musk ducks, I don't know if they were in isolation or not. It's just that it hasn't been recorded. So yeah. So don't know as much about what those ducks were doing. But I'm guess, I mean, like not even just them, because there's like lyre birds and mockingbirds and all these birds that imitate sounds. Mm -hmm. You know, they, birds, yeah. they do it even in nature. Like you'll hear a tree and there's, I know when we were following some of the birding stuff, we were going to some birding 
talks earlier last year and someone was saying like they hate some of these birds that can mock really effectively because they're trying to find new birds mm -hmm. and they hear a sound of like oh it's that rare bird and then they find it and it's just this bird that knows how to mock other birds <laughs> and they're like ah and they're always... mocking the birders by doing that exactly they're really <laughs> <laughs> yep so not, but they're not mocking birds themselves no i don't <laughs> think they were i think it was a different a, a type of bird that can mock that wasn't necessarily a mocking bird. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely possible because there are so many birds that know how to mock things or mimic things that sure, it seems reasonable that there would have been a non-avian dinosaur that would do that. And we know that they did lecking because they have, we found scrape marks in the rock, which mm -hmm. is, at the time was dirt that fossilized that are pretty clearly scrape marks and there's like multiple of them. So it looks like multiple dinosaurs trying to appear worthy to a mate mm -hmm. in a lecking display, which lecking is basically like competing for a mate. So if they were doing this stuff with their feet, maybe they're flapping their arms too and they might as well be making, making some, some noises. Sounds, yeah. And who knows? In some of those cases, it might be mimicking something rather than making their own That'd be so cool to know. I It would be so difficult to figure out. Oh, yeah. I don't even know if that's possible to figure out the sounds. Yeah, I mean, sounds don't really fossilize. You can maybe, yeah, even like a syrinx, that's mostly soft tissue. So it's hard to know like what their vocalization, other than like a parasaurolophus where we think it went through nasal cavities. Mm -hmm. Outside of that, it's so hard to tell. But if a musk duck can do it, just had fun thinking about T-Rex. Yeah, because we always talk about what if T-Rex like chirped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it probably didn't. I mean, just just to clarify, we think that T-Rex based on its ear and based on the size of the animal, it was probably making noises more akin to like an alligator or an emu or something that are more like a boom or a growl or something and not high pitched. But if it did have fancier vocalization capacity, either because it was a vocal learner and or because it was trying to impress a mate through lecking and imitation, then maybe yeah. it could be chirping. And that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, from now until the end of this month, September 2021, we have our referral bonus. All you need to do is go to refer.fm slash inodino and you can get all kinds of rewards just by referring your friends that you think would enjoy our show. Yep. So thanks again, and until next time. Good day.